0: This very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore is brought to you by our generous listener supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you appreciate what we do and would like to join them, go to dollamore.com slash PayPal or dollamore.com slash Patreon. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comments show. This is I Doubt It with Thalamore. Right, everybody, welcome one and all, and thank you for joining us for this very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, as I usually am, Jesse Dollamore, and I am joined by the woman who faithfully sits by as the lovely, talented, scholarly co-host of this program for over 500 episodes, Brittany Page.
1: I am excited for people to hear this episode.
0: Marissa Baradarang. Yes. Myrsa is a law professor specializing in banking law at the University of Georgia. Uh, she's written a couple of different books. One is How the Other Half Banks, Exclusion, Exploitation, and the Threat to Democracy. And then, of course, the book we're going to talk about today, which is The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Cap.
1: I found her uh, on Twitter as I find most things.
0: Everything's on Twitter.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's the best way to keep up with current events, the news. If you care about a certain segment of society, I'm sure there's a type of Twitter for you. Like if if you watch Housewives, I'm sure there's Housewives Twitter or something like that. (laughs) Um, But there's also like the maddening science Twitter. And that's kind of where I found her because of the whole... Um, Quillette Coleman Hughes Sam Harris thing
0: yeah well let's very quickly let's define what Quillette is again for some of the audience who hasn't heard it or those of us who are just joining us
1: Mm
0: -hmm. how would you describe Quillette
1: well I'll just read their little about section here because it's like two sentences we'll
0: let you know what they say they are
1: (laughs) (laughs) Quillette is a platform for free thought we respect ideas even dangerous ones.
0: Oh, wow. We also very proud of themselves. (laughs)
1: We also believe that free expression and the free exchange of ideas help human societies flourish and progress. Quillette aims to provide a platform for this exchange. So it's kind of like the friendly space for the intellectual dark web
0: types. I would say, I I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here when I say that they, they are... These are the types of people who are very proud of themselves for having non-PC, quote-unquote, type of views. These are the kind of people who think that there is a crisis on campus with free speech right now, rather than looking at it as, yeah, there's a few isolated campuses where there may be a small group of students where it might be a problem. But on the whole, it's just not. These are these types of people. These are the, the, the Dave Rubin types, the the Sam Harris types, the the
1: Heather Hang, Brett, Brett Weinstein. And Eric Weinstein, yeah. yeah. Um so yeah. I will also say, like, I saw um an article on there from Will Storr and I didn't read it, but it was about his book about um narcissism. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a great author. So I think you have to kind of uh, take everything with a grain of salt on that website. Not, Figure out who not, wrote it. And also
0: not every article is a piece of shit.
1: Yeah. So anyway, this this, <laughs> this uh, student at, I believe, Columbia named Coleman Hughes wrote an article. He is black and he wrote about the black American culture and the racial wealth gap. So he wrote this article on Quillette. It was published on Quillette. And he's basically explaining the racial wealth gap in terms of um like spending habits in the community and kind of the culture and he tends to blame the culture for the wealth gap rather yeah. than um like historical events like slavery and black americans being excluded from Ownership of property and things like that, which is where Mersa comes in. And so he actually cites Mersa's book in his article and criticizes her thesis, the thesis of her book. And so Sam Harris had Coleman Hughes on his podcast to talk about his column because it really blew up on Twitter. And he also, I believe, mentioned Mersa by name on the podcast. And so I saw Mersa on Twitter tweeting Sam Harris kind of like, hey, What about me? You had Coleman Hughes on, but like I actually wrote this book. Yeah, I am prepared to defend it. Have me on, right? So I wanted to give a little bit of that backstory for how we came across her and her book, and because we talk about it in the interview.
0: Yeah. Well, also the 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 racial wealth gap in and of itself is a shocking. The the statistics are shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, I've read between eleven and thirteen times. The wealth your average or median white family has over your average or median um, black family. I read stats at the very beginning of the of the of the interview that are striking. For every hundred dollars uh, in wealth that a white family has, a black family holds just five dollars and four cents. That should be alarming to any American who cares about equity and equality in our society. And uh, I don't think that the explanation can just be chalked up to um buying fancy cars and and gold necklaces or or, or or whatever it is however it's being boiled down by Mr. Coleman Hughes the, the the undergraduate student at Columbia University
1: well they even had uh the Boston Globe the spotlight team who did the famous report on the Catholic Church yeah, yeah. they they did something similar where they really went into Boston um, in this deep reporting on the inequality in Boston and the median net worth for white people in Boston is almost two hundred and fifty thousand and for non-immigrant African American households, it's eight dollars two
0: hundred fifty thousand dollars versus eight. Dollars, $8. Again, I don't think the word alarming resonates powerfully enough.
1: And so I got Marissa's book, and she really goes to the root of the problem. This is not like surface-level explanations about... Um, like you talked about, clothing and um, purchasing cars, right? She really gets into the historical um, causes and it's, it's really fascinating. So we were really happy to talk to her. Well,
0: also, listen, and before we, we, we play, the, play the interview, she also doesn't deal with it just from the perspective of, yeah, blacks have really had it hard in this country. She goes through and, and describes in great detail with, with sources and citations exactly how the system was set up to be against black folks
1: mm-hmm.
0: whether it be through credit or housing uh, mortgage insurances mm-hmm. uh, from from Jim Crow and I mean everything hmm it, it is, it is a, a, a remarkable story. Something needs to be done. And I'm glad that someone like her has, has taken up the mantle to write a, a couple books about the matter.
1: And agreed to talk to us about it.
0: And agreed to talk to us about it. Perfect. So uh, without further ado, let's get to the interview. And uh, thanks for joining us. So Professor Marisa Baradaran, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So
0: this this topic is is super interesting and we're not gonna even scratch the surface in the short time that we have you. Um, the wealth gap between black and white, The New York Times um, has has written that for every $100 dollars in white family wealth, black families hold five dollars and four cents. Mm-hmm. The economic Policy Institute found that more than one in four one in four black households have zero or negative net worth compared to less than one in ten white families without wealth uh, i I wanna get into this, but before before we get into that, I wanted to kind of whet the whistles of the audience. You have a super interesting background from uh, born in Iran, you went to b y u. What, mm-hmm. what, what, what got you into, <laughs> what got you into this, to this, uh, this field? Interested uh, in this? Yeah,
2: yeah. How long, how long do you have? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, yeah, I was born in Iran. I immigrated, uh, when I was eight, nine, um, my, you know, my, my, parents, you know, were politically active there and, uh, you know, suffered accordingly. And, um, we were refugees here and, uh, you know, I was raised, um, sort of, Muslim slash Mormon. That's a, a longer story. And so I went to <laughs> BYU <laughs> as an undergrad, and um, you know, I'm, I'm have since you know uh, not not part of the, the church anymore. But um, then I uh, went to NYU Law School, and I worked uh, on Wall Street for a while uh, doing banking regulation, and was there um, during the financial crisis. And so I started writing about uh, you know what I would observed in the in the banking sort of um, you know and, and law and politics and and all of that and and eventually was able to sort of um merge my interests in sort of you know um inequality and social justice and poverty and uh what i know about how banks work and how uh um you know the the the, the mechanisms of law that create the structures that we have and so um i've written you know lots of articles and my first book was called um how the other half banks and that was about um, inequality in just broader banking, and 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 the, and the problems of you know payday lending and check cashing, and and what it means to be unbanked or you know have to rely on fringe lenders, and and I proposed um, postal banking in that book, and that idea has since taken off, and it's been great. And you know in that research, as I was you know looking at the historical roots of postal banking and credit unions and savings and loans and all that stuff, I. Kind of stumbled upon this you know this idea of like black banks and immigrant banks and so i thought oh i'll just look into that and i i intended to write a book about just like the history of black banks and immigrant banks and how those fit into the other banks um like credit unions and et cetera that i was studying and and really um i didn't intend to write a book about the racial wealth gap but as i started to understand what black banks were what they were trying to do and what they represent and what they couldn't do um it became a book explaining uh, the racial wealth gap um, because banks are wealth creators and banks are a reflection of sort of the fundamentals of an economy and so by studying the banks and their balance sheets and all of the rhetoric uh, around banking uh, historically I um, you know it ended up becoming about well how how is it that this wealth gap got so huge and was not closable um, by these institutions.
0: You know, it's shocking to me that the problem, as we move further and further into modernity, that the problem's not getting better, that Mm -hmm. um, between 1983 and 2013, the wealth of medium black household declined by 75%, while during that same time, the wealth for median white households increased by 14%. we're we're screwing this up. We're not getting better. So the topic is super interesting. But before I, because I kind of want to go through the history of this with with credit and just the the terrible situation. Y- you came to my attention through, I don't want to say a like a rap battle, <laughs> but <laughs> really. But Quillette just did have that article oh, from yeah. from the the Hughes guys, Coleman Hughes,
1: Coleman Hughes, yes, Coleman Hughes, yes. yes.
0: and. Uh, it is a bummer that, that that Sam Harris, rather than have someone who is an expert yeah. in this, has him on.
1: Yeah, well, and, and it's interesting because the racial wealth gap is getting more attention, but it seems like there's two sides on it, right? You have um, people like you who are taking this even-handed approach, uh, using evidence, statistics, historical implications to explain it, and then you have people like... Uh, Coleman Hughes and Sam Harris and even Charles Murray, like using scientific racism to explain some of these things. And uh, I know I saw you tweeting Sam Harris saying, hey, uh, I want to come on to give my side of the story, right? Um, Because you were named in Coleman Hughes's article. So I guess with these two sides, um, how, how are you thinking about the alternative explanations for the racial uh, racial wealth gap? And what would you say, I guess, to, um, Sam Harris or, uh, Coleman Hughes to kind of address their points that you, that you think they're missing from you?
2: Well, I mean, uh, to be honest, my book, the thesis of my book is a response, uh, to their arguments, yeah. uh, which are uh, you know, uh, quite sort of, in my opinion, old and dated arguments. What Coleman Hughes is proposing is not um, a new idea. It's one that goes back to you know Booker T. Washington, and basically the idea is like the the problem of the, and and it's not exactly Booker T. Washington's main argument, but it is a it is a minor one that he makes. And and the argument is the racial wealth gap isn't really about policy and. Um, you know, any ex- sort of external forces, it is a matter of culture. And so, uh, you know, there's lack of savings and, you know, uh, broken families and, and all of these other things. And, and, you know, this is, you know, it comes from uh, is, several sources. I mean, Moynihan Report, Charles Murray, um, there's a lot of people who would look at, you know, okay, so there's all of these, you know, problems. Uh, Moynihan called it a, cult- a, a culture of pathology in these black neighborhoods and and these are causing the the racial wealth gap. Now Moynihan, to his credit, Moynihan was in the Johnson era. um, And and to his credit, he says, look, uh, federal policy created the racial wealth gap, but um, he doesn't call it the racial wealth gap, but but just inequality. Um, Yet a culture of pathology has taken root and therefore it is time to sort of uh, treat this problem with benign neglect right so let let them work it out himself and that's the policy outcome that a lot of these um you know people propose so charles murray and and uh, coleman hughes you know would be would would say look look to yourselves and save your money and don't do these things that deprive you of wealth you know i've, I've seen other sources like will graduate from college and and you know do all this stuff and that's the reason and for your problems, and so look. Well, I, I like anyone else would say, look. Yes, everyone needs you know financial education, and everyone needs you know to, to do better with their money, et cetera. But all the data, and I sh- explain this very clearly several times in the book. All the data shows that actually, um, one that that these behaviors or. Uh, different patterns are not the cause of the racial wealth gap, and two, that there aren't actually different patterns that you could point to. In other words, Blacks do not save less than whites. I mean, in fact, the best studies show that they save at an equal rate, if not more, um, that, you know, uh, broken homes and all of this stuff is is something that affects uh, races equally. Obviously, it's attendant to poverty. So the more poor you are, um, you're less likely to have these structures. Um, And so if anything, all of these cultural... "Quote unquote pathologies that they would say are an outgrowth of poverty, um, as opposed to the cause of poverty." And and there's so much research now that shows this. I mean, uh, psychological research, neurological research that shows like when when people are in uh, living in, in the state of poverty or scarcity uh lots of lots of things uh you know function differently or when you are living in a segregated ghetto for you know a, a whole century and you know deprived of all the resources like schooling and infrastructure and you know uh, public spaces um, and and you have more uh cops and more uh prosecutions and all of that stuff more criminal sort of uh, sanctions more prison time, uh, those are going to create problems. Um, and so so I think a lot of these people take the problem and kind of get it exactly backwards. And so my response is, well, I, I don't know, read the book. Um, if you're not convinced <laughs> that I'd, I'd love to hear like a response to to the actual book and not just a regurgitation of the very tropes that I feel like are So common in in this dialogue and and, you know, obviously, like you said, you know, the fact that that, you know, pundits like Sam Harris, I don't know what his motives are, but, you know, there's a lot of people who write about race. There's a lot of people um, who write about different outcomes and inequality. And um, it's it was surprising to me that he chose to have uh, Coleman. He was not that I have anything against Coleman. Hughes. He seems like a really smart person. But I mean it's people have dedicated their lives to studying this right,
0: stuff. Right, right. Well, it's, it's it seems <laughs> to to call it a trope I think is very accurate, but mm-hmm. because to and this is very simplifying of his his essay, but to say that, you know, oh, well blacks they like to buy gold necklaces and drive too expensive cars than they can afford, uh, that, that that really is boiling it down to to it's not an explanation.
1: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, that was it's one of the blame. That was one of the explanations offered on the podcast with Sam Harris and Coleman Hughes. And the, another common um, talking point for that side is to say, "Oh, well, other um, immigrant populations have suffered as well, and they aren't in the same position as Black Americans." Uh, for example, Coleman Hughes talked about Japanese Americans. And so, what would you what would your response be to that common talking point as well?
2: you know uh, a lot of the problems with uh, the racial wealth gap were created by a new deal policy by jim crow by slavery um by all of these things that affected blacks only um uh, and not asian immigrants um certainly no one no one is claiming that of these other groups had it easy. I right. mean, there has been anti-Semitism in this country as long as we can remember, Asians was internment and all of this stuff, but, but, you know, not getting FHA mortgages because of their race, right. not you know, having Jim Crow laws and and, uh, segregation in the ghettos in the way that they have. And, And I have all of the data in my book. I mean, it's, you know, looking at Chicago, Baltimore, all these areas, the segregation indexes for blacks were like 95%, meaning in those segregated areas, they were, you know, uh, majority, like very heavily majority black, but in any other segregated. So yes, Italians were segregated and Irish to some extent, but not nearly to the same extent. And those things got eradicated with the New Deal. So when the New Deal and the FHA programs come in uh, to policy, um, the you know those groups become white, and all of these FHA maps, these redlined maps, um, sh- you know they have you have seen these uh, these papers, and they the one you know, uh, indicator of whether an area is going to be lent mortgages or not is a uh, percentage of Negroes. I mean, that, that is a sure. historical document, not percentage of Asians and Italians and all these other groups that were, you know, um, discriminated against And, and look, I mean, I, I didn't write a book about, you know, Native Americans or Mexican migrants. And look, there are plenty of, you know, there's plenty of problems that each group has, but For sure. when we're talking about the racial wealth gap and we're talking about, um, the, the segregation causing it. Um, this is a specifically black white problem. And that's my focus. Well, and, it's, uh, th- yeah.
0: th- there's a unique history involved with black Americans,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, starting with slavery and then the systematic subversion of progress step by step from the Emancipation Proclamation on when during Reconstruction,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, immediately after slaves were freed, you have a largely illiterate population that isn't being helped. Mm-hmm. And I like to talk about things from a not not like a thirty thousand foot view, but step into the shoes and see how exactly would it work. Right, and there was no. At no point were were was that population allowed to flourish
2: mm-hmm.
0: ever, right,
2: right, and and I mean we've never discriminated in that way against any other group. One and two, so so looking at the 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 proposals that these uh, these you know these commentators have is okay. Well, they should do it themselves. They should have entrepreneurism and whatever. And that's that's the focus of my book. Is like look at all the ways in which black banks, black businesses. Black entrepreneurs and families have been trying for two centuries to close the wealth gap. And what I'm trying to show is the ways in which the economic structure, I'm not talking about the Klan or racist, but the way in which segregation affects home prices and you know, banking and credit. Look at the ways in which every um, avenue at, at, at you know closing this wealth gap, saving money, buying a home, All of this stuff has been thwarted because of the economic structure. So if you're saying, okay, buy a home, that's the way. Buy a home and get a mortgage, and that's the way you're going to increase wealth. Well, historically, from the the second that Black families could buy a home until today, the value of Black homes isn't retained. In other words, Black black homes don't increase in value um, because they're in Black neighborhoods. And we still have... uh, you know, a segregated system in which uh, there's like maybe two or three upper middle class Black neighborhoods in the country where those homes have retained values. Every other one has diminished in value. And so if we're talking about, okay, we'll save your money and build equity in your home, that's just not possible um, to Blacks. Uh, in their banks, right? Their banks get credit, get a student loan, you know, and, and you, you see these indicators of uh, education affecting the racial wealth gap. And and uh, the truth there is that the education actually doesn't help. Yes, it will help you increase your own chances, but um, you will still make less, you will still have less wealth um, than what your white counterparts. And the majority of this goes back to those programs of home ownership that were exclusionary and how the effects of those homes. So from 1934 until 1965, really, uh, the FHA programs and these mortgages only wait, went to white families. So these are people's grandparents, right? Or sure. parents. And, and those homes stay in the neighborhood, and they get passed down. And that wealth um, creates a lot of other opportunities, like better schools and ability to go to college. And all of that stuff that just stays within that family um, wasn't available to Black families. Um, and so it's really difficult to overcome that as, as hard as you uh, work um, on a total scale. So now you can look, point to individuals like Oprah or LeBron or whoever I just get, you know, like, well, what about this person? Sure. sure. Like, we can all count on, you know, two hands, the uh, a bunch of African-Americans who are able to overcome these odds, but, you know, I deal in statistics and the statistics are not um, pretty.
0: Well, I would, I would recommend everybody pick up the book because there are, there is a a section of history in the United States that especially white people don't correlate mm-hmm. with rampant systemic um, oppression and prejudice against blacks. For, like post-World War II, you hear Bill O'Reilly talking about, oh, I grew up in Levittown and it was this and that. Right. Blacks yeah. were excluded from that opportunity of home ownership, just like they were... Uh, here, I mean, we're in Southern California, but Daly City, mm-hmm. south of San Francisco, right. it's the same, the same right. thing. That they, this opportunity was created for veterans. Blacks right. served right. honorably in World War II and were boxed out mm-hmm. of that, Absolutely. that that opportunity for
2: wealth accumulation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Levittown had like, you know, didn't have a single black family until uh, I think something in like the 70s. Right. And so so, you know, I think when we talk about, you know, individual white people can say, well, I have suffered, too. I have not had privilege. I have grown up in poverty and, and no one is trying to take that away. Um, it's just that that poverty wasn't created uh, because of your race. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why. Um, people, you know, suffer in poverty and there's plenty of regions in the country where, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to overcome those odds. But uh, we have systematically excluded the black population from wealth creating mechanisms and, and policies. And and really, I mean, until uh, the 60s and 70s, these were all very well known and uh, proposed and, you know, uh, supported by policymakers at every level. So it's not a surprise that um, these things are still with us.
0: Well, it is, it is surprising. I mean, a lot of this is a systemic thing and some of it is societal, Um, you know, leaving the, the, the reconstruction era and into the mid twenties or the early twenties with, with black wall street. That's another section of history that um, white Americans need to know about that even when black started to. Uh, black Americans started to, to to make something and to, to accumulate some wealth, they were, sm- you know, smashed and burned and killed. And uh, right. the, the, the wealth and the, the homes and the town was destroyed um, because of you know, jealousy and racism.
2: Right, right. I mean, there's, yeah, uh, there were commonly, uh, you know, uh, lots of conversations, uh, especially during the, you know, Jim Crow era. This is not that long ago. So this is, you know, within a lot of people's, uh, you know, maybe their grandparents' lifetime. Um, So in the 20s, you know, uh, 1910s, 1920s, where, um, you know, uh, lynch mobs and mobs with bombs uh, would come as soon as a black person, you know, had the gall to buy a house in a white neighborhood. I mean, if you could get past the realtors and the banks and the homeowners associations and the racial covenants, if you could get past all those layers of law to buy a home in a white neighborhood, then you would deal with the mob mob violence. Um, so so a lot of people didn't do it. And the, those who did, um, they, 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 there's health to pay. You know, there's these standoffs. You know, this Dr. Austin Sweet was uh, uh, this doctor in Chicago who moved into his house and he was, I guess, I don't know, just saying, okay, well, we're going to do this. And I have a right as an American to buy a home wherever I want. And he bought a home in Chicago in the white neighborhood and, um, the, the crowd showed up and he was armed. Uh, you know, he, again, uh, his second amendment, right. To own a gun. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the mob formed outside of his house and they were throwing things into the window and about to light it on fire. And they shot out. And, uh, one of the mob, uh, was killed and he got, you know, tried for murder. And, um, really, I mean, these, this was a, a very high profile one because someone was killed. A lot of times they would just go quietly. Um, Jesse Binga, the banker in Chicago, his house was bombed like nine times, uh, because wow. he was too close to the white neighborhood. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, so, so to hear someone say, well, maybe if they just save their money, you know, uh, and the racial wealth gap is is because they're buying cars and, and what what was the stat, like costume jewelry, you know, like uh, it, 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 it's, it's hard, honestly, for me to take these um, arguments um, as, as though they are in good faith because I, I just, it, it seems so, um, so far from, all of the factors that we all know create wealth, uh, property, jobs. You know, to ignore all of that and to say cars and jewelry—that just—it seems like well, are you purposefully obfuscating? Are you purposefully ignoring? Yeah. Uh, these these large trends, or do you really believe that? And if you really believe that, um, then then I, I would love to uh, you know help you figure out these bigger. Um, structural elements.
1: Right. And it seems very simplistic, very surface level, not getting to the root of the problem. And I think that's something that's really important about your book. And you also talk about um, the credit system and the credit system creating wealth. And I was wondering if you could get into that a little bit, too, like how exactly the credit system creates wealth.
2: Um, well, I mean, most of uh, the wealth that was created uh, this century, and I can go back in previous centuries and talk about that. But in this century, um, it was through uh the FHA and the GI Bill and the credit mechanisms that those created and the consumer credit that that went attendant to that. And what those government programs did was um, create a pool of capital uh, funded by the federal government. And to um, so so think of it like the FDIC fund. That was also uh, uh, innovated during this time. But what these pools of credit did is allow private banks to lend without the risk. Um, So you would have the, the FHA guaranteed all the mortgages that were um, standardized, and they would tell you, okay, you're gonna do a 30-year fixed mortgage with so much down payment, and, uh, and if you you know, kept to these numbers, the FHA fund would insure that mortgage. So you were taking no risk of defaults, because if the homeowner stopped paying, the government fund would insure you against that loss. And so this, this created huge uh, credit mechanisms. And then the GI Bill, of course, it just gave um, student loans with very l- little interest. Um, And these were not available to Blacks, but they were huge wealth-creating mechanisms. I mean, they allowed people um, to, I mean, it created a middle class. It took, you know, a lot of workers who were wage workers in, in, you know, crowded tenements in the city um, and and made them homeowners in Levittown, right, where they could pay less in a mortgage than they had paid in rent. And that was because of credit uh, provided by Federal government insurance, um, and then that also kicked off a whole bunch of other credit mechanisms that went, uh, you know, with that. So consumer credit. So, you know, in the white suburbs, you have credit cards. In the black ghettos, where none of those credit uh, uh, mechanisms went, uh, you have installment credit. And installment credit, you know, you're paying 10 times as much. So this is like a rent-a-center. Um, and and these were just, you know, these were Aren't uh, you know exclusions? This is just how the market um, responded to uh, the high risks inside the ghetto versus in the white neighborhood. So, so if you follow the price of money, um, you see how those exclusionary policies um, reduced risk. Uh, for white borrowers and increased risk for black borrowers, you're cordoning off a segment of the population. you're segregating it uh, and uh, forcing them to pay more in rent and pay more in credit. And that wasn't the purpose. That wasn't the point, right? Uh, they weren't saying, well, we want them to, you know, have to pay more. That was just the consequence of um, excuse me, the consequence of of those mechanisms. So,
0: so you wouldn't you would categorize that maybe not in its infancy or when it started as, as a uh, predatory, but wouldn't you say that payday lending and those types of, of uh, mechanisms now are they're That's predatory lending. No. Uh,
2: uh, absolutely. Well, y- yes and no. Yes. Uh, yes. In a way that they're, pre- it dep- depends on how you define predatory. It, it is, they are, there are some like subprime loans, right? They were going in to prey on certain neighborhoods. So you're sending in subprime lenders into black and brown neighborhoods to uh, buy, to, to sell these lower tiered mortgages, knowing, right, these uh, lenders knew that these people could otherwise qualify for prime mortgages, but they still chose to give them subprime. That I think is predatory. Um, some of the ways in which these these credit mechanisms work, it's not predatory, but just it just costs more to lend when there aren't banks. So once banks left those areas, you know, and created these banking deserts and the payday lenders came in and the payday lenders aren't competing based on price. They're competing on a bunch of other factors. And uh, and so they just charge the maximum yeah. Uh, you know, uh, rate allowable by law. I, are they preying on their customers? Well, I, I don't know, but it's certainly, they're not doing them a service.
0: Yeah. It's a very measured approach. Um, so d- would you chalk that up to some of the, look, I, when I was in the Marine Corps, I served with a lot of, a lot of guys, um, mm-hmm. my brothers in arms and a, a lot of black guys didn't have bank accounts that they, 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 or they had one cause they had to because of direct deposit, but they always had with them a giant wad of cash. Yeah. And I was always perplexed by this. And it was because of I talked. I mean, this is, you know, re- relying on my experience, but they they were paranoid. They didn't trust banks. It was yeah. pretty widespread with all, all the, the 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 black Marines with whom I served. And uh, do you think it, that is born out of that?
2: Absolutely. I mean, the distrust of banks among the Black population goes back, uh, you know, centuries, and it's, it's continued over time. And most of it is, uh, you know, uh, reasonable.
1: Yeah. <laughs> One,
2: banks don't, you know, haven't been in those areas. Um, and when they have been, I mean, you go to the Freedmen's Bank, which is a story I start off with in the book. Uh, this is a bank that was created um, by Congress uh, during Reconstruction. And the point of it was to safeguard uh, the freedmen's money, and and they speculated it away. So their money was just gone, like poof, in the railroad uh, bond sector. And, you know, the white managers that just kind of looted the bank, quite frankly. Um, so starting there, I mean, I, you know, I've been looking at records up until the 60s and 70s where people, that failure reverberated because it was such a widespread banking, uh, you know, the, the propaganda and the savings Um, you know, uh, accounts from that bank, everyone had an account. And and once those were gone, a lot of, you know, grandparents told their kids, never put your money in a bank, you know, and then that that gets translated down in time. I mean, you look at the rates of unbanked and underbanked and in, in the South um, blacks are 60% underbanked. That is a, that is a phenomenal percentage considering that whites are about like 3% underbanked. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, some of it is, uh, you know, people are, can be too poor to bank, uh, banks don't like, uh, small deposits. Uh, they will try to repel them. They will give you overdraft fees, whatever, or, or, they're just not in the neighborhoods where, um, black, uh, you know, impoverished black communities are, that's just not a neighborhood a bank will open. So there's those factors, but there's also just distrust, um, uh, that, that runs rampant.
1: Is, do these factors contribute to why you advocate for postal banking? Yes. Yes. So uh,
2: my uh, postal banking proposal is that, you know, you have all these banking deserts and mostly they correlate with either black and brown uh, urban city neighborhoods or uh, rural areas where banks have left because they're too poor um, to bank. And so yet all these areas still have a post office. and, and, And what I would propose, what I proposed in the first book is that they would just offer a simple savings account, you know, so you would go in, start a savings. And from there you could, you know, uh, get your online, you know, checking account or whatever, but it would just be through the post office.
0: And do you think because it's it's not so much profit driven like a commercial right. bank that it would be less aggressive relative to fees and 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 everything else?
2: Yeah, it would be less aggressive. I mean, uh, historically, the post office uh, has done this. Uh, so we had postal banking in this country, abroad. Uh, you know, ev- practically every country has or has had a postal banking system. And and the idea uh, here as there has been, um, I mean, this is a, an institution that is linked with the government, um, but but it is in every community. And banking services and credit are things that are sort of vital to participation in the economy. And to the extent that the private banks don't find that they can get profits from neighborhoods, uh, the post office is, an, is a really good way of getting Uh, To those services there. And also the the point of the post office is to, you know, take one thing from one place to another. And for most of uh, history, that was banking too, right? To send checks from one place to another. And so the post office was a, was a perfect institution to do this.
0: And there's certainly already an infrastructure built uh, relative to brick and mortar that they're, Mm -hmm. they're in communities. They're there.
2: Yeah,
0: exactly. What is the impediment to making that happen right now?
2: Re-
0: Republic, Republican uh, congressman.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, bankers, bankers will oppose it. Uh, I guess Republicans will oppose it. Um, you know, anyone who doesn't want banks to have competition uh, wants to shut down the post office. So the post office is not uh, government supported. In other words, taxpayers don't pay for it. Yeah, but, that's right. Uh, it is, you know, it is a government institution, and a, a lot of people uh, on the right have their eyes at privatizing the post office, which I. I think would be a disaster not forget banking. I mean, I think the post office uh, Is the oldest institution in this country. It it predates the US Constitution. Uh, It is the most democratic uh, mechanism we've ever had at just, you know, recognizing each community's value um, and linking the country Uh, So so I think it would be a tragedy uh, to to see it privatized but that's sort of the goal and I think a lot of uh, people who see that as a goal don't want the post office to add any services.
0: Well, one more reason to vote this midterm. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the, the yeah. Republicans in Congress have have stymied and and put impediments in the, in place in the post office for making them pay for like seventy years of of, of benefits and and pensions yes. in advance yes. and all this just yeah. idiocy. Yes. Um, yeah, it's it, yeah. This is fascinating.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's one of these things, uh, you know, you defund the post office and then they have to cut services. And then you say, well, look at you know, they're they're losing money. You know, they're clearly, you know, they're poorly run, but it's like, but wait, you just defunded us, you know, like you're the one that forced us to pay our pensions. I mean, that was unprecedented. Yeah. To make the post office pre-fund their pensions for 75 years. And that that was what created their budget shortfall. In other words, they were fine before that. They were, you know, adapting to the changing technology, but but look, like you know, uh, as we, you know, went from no one sending letters, fine, but we're all in, into, you know, buying stuff online and, and sending packages. So the post is very relevant in that new economy. And 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 looking at the history of the post office, it's adapted to technology over and over and over again. And so there's no reason to doubt that it would adapt once again. Um, but it can't adapt if you're going to defund it yeah. and then blame it for uh, its own money problems that you created.
0: You, you mean... you. You're going out on a limb and saying that it's not Jeff Bezos and Amazon, (laughs) like Donald Trump says.
2: No, it's not Jeff Bezos and Amazon. It's Congress. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, Jeff Bezos is using the post office. And, And look, UPS, there are places that UPS won't go. It's not profitable for UPS to go. So they use the post office for that last little bit of delivery right um so there's a ton of communities where the post office is their last link their only link to the federal government and those, those are the places that will lose their post office and that's trump country you know to be honest um, so so I don't, I don't i hope it doesn't come down to a partisan uh divide on this actually
0: well how do you i mean this is obviously a a big a massive societal a systemic issue what are some short to medium term things, um, solutions, or at least the start to some solutions to get on the road to recovery here for the for the black community and the racial wealth gap?
2: Well, I mean, I think, uh, again, it, it, it comes down to policy. I, I really do think um, we have to uh, recognize that the wealth gap was created by, uh, you know, government policy and that the government policy has got to play a role, and so I would say, like you said, vote voting, um, and and to just being becoming educated enough to not be uh, um, mis- miseducated by uh, some of these quack theories of, of you know what caused the racial wealth gap, and to blame people whose whose fault it's not. Um, so so I think you know to start by I I, mean, I'm, I, I always think that you know knowing how history has created a problem is is the, is the step number one. And then, um, you know, uh, using our vote and our voice to draw attention to some of these injustices. I mean, in the way that we've done, you know, prison reform and, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, these movements that just drew attention to a problem, like, look, this is happening, this is a problem, you know, and, and you have these activists saying, Uh, You know, maybe we don't have like an exact solution here, but we just want you to alert you to, to this problem that's happening. I think that's a really great first step.
1: I think it's also important to weed out the politicians who are contemptuous of offering government assistance to populations, the ones who shame people that are on food stamps and want to put oh, want to put restrictions yeah. on the types of food that people can buy and and things yeah. like that. I think that people who believe that everyone is capable of just being thrown into the world and becoming a millionaire, um, mm-hmm. those kinds sure. of people need to be voted out and no. No longer supported
2: yeah. yeah well and there's so much uh racial dog whistling when it comes to you know welfare and government assistance and you know, there's all this research that shows that like you know if you if you picture welfare recipient as white you're much more likely to be pro-welfare and if you picture them as black you're less likely you know and right. so uh, you know and and you know that was uh the genius of you know lee atwater and bush and reagan and and, and clinton uh, uh uh, you know, the dog whistling on race is to link those welfare programs to the black population, where the data shows that it's more white than black. Um, I don't think welfare is the solution, uh, but it is uh, symptomatic of the problem of not being willing to face a problem and and blaming the victims for uh, a, a problem that they didn't create.
0: Yeah, we definitely need to get away from, it's something we talk about on the show a lot, which is the The, I'll use your term, the trope of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Well, when, right. you, when you don't even have boots, there's no goddamn straps yeah. to pull yourself up from. Right, so.
2: right. And right. Everyone looks at their own life and is like, oh yeah, well I worked hard and I earned what I got. And sure, of course. You know, like no one's going to say, well I just kind of, you know, I had a lot of tailwinds, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, they can only see the headwinds and they can only see the, the, the struggles that they overcame. And so it's really hard for people to understand a privilege. And uh, not just, you know, white privilege like a, on an identity level, but just the, the ways in which their, uh, you know, schools were benefited from their, you know, uh, their parents' home ownership or their parents' wealth. And you could say, well, they didn't have wealth. But maybe did you grow up in a home that your parents maybe owned? Uh, did you go to a school with other homeowners? Um, you know, things like that 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 seem like, well, that's
1: not a privilege. That's everybody. Well, right. not everybody. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Did you have food in the cupboard? Did you have food in the fridge? Right. Were your parents yeah. there to make you dinner? Were you largely on right. your own, watching yourself? All of those exactly. things play a role. Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: I I, saw, yes. I think. I think we should reframe how we talk about privilege, white privilege, because it, right. it it's become that that you know leftist tr- you know get, gets thrown out there all the time. Yes. And I saw something the other day that it said white privilege doesn't mean you didn't have it hard. It just right. means the color of your skin wasn't th- one of those things that made it hard.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Exactly, exactly. And 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 I think, you know, I, I do, I shy away from using those words because I think they have been so linked with um, these soft things of like, well, what is it like to go around the world as a, as a white or non-black person? And I think, you know, what I want to focus on too is like just the systems uh, of benefits, you know? So so sure, maybe one or two white people or a bunch of white people didn't have it so easy or they were discriminated against on this and that level, but on the whole, statistically speaking, um, these things were racially coded, you know? And so white privilege means that the government, to me, that the government never systematically excluded white people from credit mechanisms, right? I mean, that's just never happened in American history. Uh, white people were never, you know, told that they couldn't enter certain establishments. Well, you could say, well, they, they weren't allowed to enter black establishments, kind of, but that was like, they made those rules, <laughs> yeah. you know? Uh, so, so, you know, when you say reverse discrimination, well, sure, someone can make you feel bad because of your race, but um, the Senate and the executive and the powers of the federal government have never excluded white people from the privileges of those uh, government yeah, institutions.
0: I, I look at it as, as like uh, scissors or, or like a, your, your, your pencil sharpener at school. If you're right-handed, this shit works great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. this, what do you mean there's a problem yeah, with this? Yeah, if, exactly. you're, if you're left-handed, yeah. it's like, oh, this doesn't really work very well.
1: Right. Right, right. And right, it's, exactly. it's
0: not your choice, but it's just the way the system built the pair of scissors and the, the, right. the pencil sharpener. See, I'm a dumb guy. I need to make it really, <laughs> really no, simple.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to see that you're like well i just use scissors i just pick them up and i use them you know so that's not a privilege i just use scissors right that's the way scissors yeah. are used and so you could say well it doesn't work when i try it and he's like well, what do you mean like it's never been hard for me how could it be hard for you if it's never been hard for me yes. you know yeah um it, it's that kind of thing where you're like you know or you know, as a woman you're like well you know i i don't understand what you mean you're scared when you walk into, you know, a dark parking garage. Yeah. I've never been scared when I've walked in. Just, you know, just hold your head up s- straight and walk in. You know, and you're like, well, it's different for me. You know, and I'm like, that's that's crazy. You're 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 being hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. so true. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, listen, we love talking to smart people, and you are clearly one of oh. those. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend and pick up your other book, the how the other half banks exclusion, exploitation, and the threat to democracy. And we already obviously have a copy of The Color of Money, Blacks, Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. Um, We do like to leave. Mm -hmm. We're going to start doing this as soon as I start remembering every episode (laughs) to ask our guest a question. We're going to put you on the spot.
1: Yes. Okay. Ooh. what is the last thing that you changed your mind about and what prompted the change? And it can be something innocuous. We've had people say <laughs> like, Oh, I like IPAs yeah. now or something this like that. Is so good. yeah. This is a good one. Yes.
2: Um, I, um, I will tell you a uh, Twitter, Twitter. I used to think Twitter was a cesspool. <laughs> of trolls yes and uh i hated it i avoided it i was you know i was much more drawn to other mechanisms and now i just i really enjoy twitter it's it's uh i've figured out i guess you know that i don't have to follow everyone and that i can block people and um it's the first place i go now in you know to get my my news and analysis oh yeah
1: and i I enjoy Twitter. <laughs> that's crazy, right?
0: Well, it, it's inter- we love Twitter. Yeah, it, it really is yeah.
1: the best place for news. I think if you follow yeah. the right people, you can create your timeline, and then it is really yeah. beneficial. Yeah,
0: Brittany talks to me all the time about academic Twitter. Yeah, because if you yeah. look at Brittany's timeline and mine are completely different.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. So right. Well,
0: that's good. We uh, yeah. we approve of that uh, that mind
1: change. Yeah, and we're happy that's that it's too. no longer a cesspool for you. Yeah, well, it's still a cesspool. I
2: mean, sometimes when I'll post something, I get a bunch of, you know, that debate with the Sam Harris crew. That uh, was not pleasant. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. you know, um, that's fine. I can develop a thick skin on that.
1: That's good.
0: Well, I would encourage everybody to go follow you on Twitter, too. It is at, yeah. uh, and I'm going to spell your name for everybody.
2: Uh, I, I can do it if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, go at it. At, at Mersa Baradaran, M-E-H-R-S-A-B-A-R-A-D-A-R-A-N.
0: Is there anything else that you uh, you have going on that you want to talk about?
2: Um, not really. Oh. Just happy it's Friday.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Well, that <laughs> a is long week. L- listen, that is beautiful. We appreciate your work. We appreciate your we appreciate the, the research that, that you're doing. It is important, and uh, thanks for sticking with Twitter because you're. Yeah. you're, you're, you're listen, it, it may sound trivial, but you really are making the world a better place. Putting oh, wow. this stuff out there. And uh, an important voice waiting in to. I don't want to say battles and make it sound too nefarious, but, but it
1: is difficult when, especially when you're up against yeah. that large audience. Um, I mean, he, Sam yeah. Harris has a substantial audience. So when you're okay. up against that, it, it can be yeah. quite difficult. And Jesse knows how that goes a little bit. Cause he's on the YouTubes and, yep. uh, he gets a lot of hate. So I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it can be th- hard.
2: You think
0: Twitter's bad.
2: <laughs> I, know, I, know. Oh, on, gosh. I don't even check the comments <laughs> on YouTube. I, yeah. I, it's,
0: yeah. Uh, It's bad. Death threats and everything else, sister, let me tell you. (laughs) Oh, gosh.
2: I bet. That's rough.
0: Well, that was awesome. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you
0: so uh, much. We appreciate you.
1: Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Well, what do you think?
1: I think, (laughs) I think everyone needs to pick up Marissa's book. Yes. The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap.
0: Which you can get on Amazon. Yes. And if you really like the show and really want the book, you can go to com slash Amazon. That'll redirect you to Amazon. Yeah. And, uh you'll give us a little, a little commission, a little support of the show.
1: Yeah, this this discussion that we had with Mirsa was really just to get people primed to want to dig deeper. And especially if you want to be armed with information when you have these discussions or when someone makes a an ignorant comment, you will read this book and you will be armed with information and prepared to talk about it. And I yeah. think that that's a really important thing, especially with the climate right now
0: well we also i i think it's important that every everybody within the sound of our voice everybody in america be be hip to this problem right be um not ignorant anymore of it yeah so we can all have a responsibility to make change where change is necessary and there's a lot of room to get some shit done and and make a difference in this in this arena
1: make change and advocate for that change absolutely yeah
0: So we're going to leave you there. We love you guys. We appreciate you. Listen, if this is the first time joining us, we have a family of supporters on Patreon that help us out every month to help produce content just like this. The other side of the show that we do, which is two and three times a week, is more of a news and comment thing. And then every once in a while, we do episodes like this and are brought to you by our Patreon supporters. You can find that by going to dollamore.com patreon and that will redirect you there. We appreciate all of our supporters, all of our listeners, whether they give or whether they don't give. Uh, it is a beautiful thing and a privilege that Brittany and I have to be able to to do what we do here. And we count our supporters among those that make it happen. So we will see you next time. We appreciate you. We love you. For Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been... I doubt it.